<laughs> All right, open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. John chapter 12, starting in verse 27, I should say, picking up our story uh, in verse 27, the Gospel of John 12, 27. This is God's Word. Jesus speaking, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's pray one more time. Father... May the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we sing a song now that is kind of an oldie, uh, kind of an 80s classic, Christian classic, and it's, it's here I am to worship. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Right here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely. Anyway, you probably know that song. And there's the bridge. And the bridge goes like this. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. And Christians have puzzled over that over the years, over these short years. Um, They go, well, what does that mean? I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. Uh, in fact, I even heard a preacher preach against it about, I don't know, 15 years ago. Uh, he railed against it. He was like, I'll never know how much it costs uh, to see my sin upon the cross. He goes, the minute we get to heaven, we'll know. And that was a big sermon point. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, God is under no obligation to answer every question we ever had. Now you say, well, when we get to heaven, we can ask God uh, questions and he'll answer. Yes, indeed, indeed. He'll, he'll answer questions, true. But God is under no obligation to give us every answer to every question, and we can't understand uh, every answer to every question um, that you seek. Uh, we are beings of eternity, yes. Uh, that's why, by the way, sexual sin is such a potent sin in the Bible, because you're playing around with the creation of something that is an eternal being. A, sin, a sexual sin is a unique sin. It has to do with the creation of an eternal being something with a start, but that's something that lives forever. Um, but so, yeah, we're eternal beings, but we've had a starting point. And the reason we've had a starting point is that we're created. Uh, we're finite, not infinite. We're creatures, not the creator. Um, and so, um, you, you think of the person of God. He has attributes. We share, as image bearers, a lot of those attributes. For instance, justice. Do you have a heart? Do you, do you desire justice? You want to see justice done? Yes, we have a legal system. 
uh, in, in, in our country. Every country's had a legal system because we desire justice. How about love? Can you love someone? Of course you can. You share an attribute with God. We, we, we love someone. Um, we, we long for truth. We can be faithful with somebody. We can be patient with somebody. We, we share attributes. But there are attributes that are incommunicable. You know, like a communicable disease can be shared. Incommunicable cannot be shared. And an incommunicable attribute of God is that he knows all things about everything all the time. That is an incommunicable attribute. Satan doesn't have it. You're never going to have it. Um, How about uh, having all the power over all things at all times? You will never have that attribute. It is incommunicable. Um, Being everywhere present. Are you going to be able to be everywhere present? Never. Never. Not in heaven, not now. You're not going to be able to be everywhere present because it's an incommunicable attribute of God. All right? And so, you know, you... you, um, you think of um, this scene in Isaiah 6.3. Uh, my, my point here is that there's always going to be mystery. There's mystery in what's happening here with Jesus. There's, there's mystery in what he's saying. Um, there's mystery um, in... in uh, all right, so, so back to Isaiah 6. Uh, the uh, angelic beings around uh, God, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then they say it again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, you would think that uh, the holy ones in heaven who are sinless, who are around the throne of God, who observe God in His glory, you would think that they would go, yeah, we, get, we understand. We understand. We're not, we're not blinded by sin. We're in God's presence. Uh, we've been here for uh, as long as He's made us, um, and... Um, uh, we, but they never come to a point where they go, oh, we get it, we get it. We, we, we totally understand your holiness, God. Um, you know, in uh, Psalm 89, verse 6, it says, Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the counsel of His holy ones, and awesome above all who are around Him. So even the heavenly sinless beings around God, they don't have Him figured out. They don't say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and they high-five each other, and they say, all right, let's move on to the next one, Uh, because uh, holiness, (laughs) we've seen it, we get it, we've got it figured out. Rather, they say it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Why do they do that? It is because God is infinite in His perfections. He reveals His holiness, and they fall. He reveals His holiness, and they fall. He reveals His holiness, and they fall. He reveals His perfections again and again and again. My point is, we will never come to the point where we say, oh, God's holiness, we've got it all figured out. Or something like this in the, in the, in the, um, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the doctrine of the Trinity is certainly in the Bible. If you study it, cover to cover, and you look for every occurrence where you can see uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you'll walk away blown away at how it is throughout the Scriptures, throughout, throughout, throughout. Uh, But we'll never come to a point where we go into heaven and we go, oh, good, now we understand the Trinity. You'll never come to a point like that. 
Um, how about this? You're never going to say, oh, now we understand the hypostatic union. You know what the hypostatic union is? God-man. God and man in, in one individual. We will never fully grasp that. Um, how about this? Um, uh, we will never fully know what was in the cup of God's wrath. That's what Jesus is talking about here. When, um, when uh, he says, my soul is troubled, um, uh, Father, glorify your name, and so on. Um, he says, um, uh, oh, where is it? Uh, it yeah, in verse uh, uh, 32, uh, when I am lifted up from the earth, that's a reference to that. I will draw all people to myself. When I am lifted up from the earth, that has to do with his accursedness. That has to do with the cup of God's wrath that Jesus had to take. We're never going to totally figure that out. And so when we sing, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. No, you won't. You'll never know that because God is infinite in His perfections. But also, it's mystery. It's a heavenly mystery that we will never fully unravel. Now, um, and by the way, that reference to His death as being the accursed, as one who takes... Um, a sin, a sin upon himself unjustly, and 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 dies uh, in just days, ladies and gentlemen. In just days, Jesus Himself will be crucified. In just days from this point. All right. So, what is the main idea today? The main idea today is this: by being killed for what is bad, Jesus defeats what is bad. And uh, let's go to our first point, which is this: Jesus, the troubled. Now, before I read verse 27, this is very important. Context is always important, but I'm telling you, if you don't remember who Jesus is talking to right now, if you do not have a context of this, you will not be able to understand this passage. Um, Look at verse 20, back up just to last week. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast, that would be Passover, were some Greeks. So you have Yahweh worshipers, some Greeks uh, who come up to the feast to worship at Passover. And Jesus is talking to these Greeks. The Greeks t- talk, come to him, and they say, uh, they say via the disciples, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, Philip tells Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip tell Jesus, and Jesus answers them. In verse 23, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, it's very important to remember the context. Some Greeks have come to Passover. They, they approach Jesus... And, um, they, and he says to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is continuing to talk to them. He's continuing to talk to their disciples, to the onlooking crowd. He's talking to these Greeks. And to him, the, that the, that the, the Greeks have shown up at Passover is very reminiscent of Abraham's call in Genesis 12, when God calls Abram and says, from you, I'm going to make this nation, and all of the peoples of the world will be blessed. That is ringing very vividly in Jesus' mind, and that's why he says um, the hour uh, has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. His entire earthly ministry is going, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. The Greeks show up, and he goes, the hour's here, as we discussed last week. Um, Now, in verse 27, it says, he says, now is my soul troubled. Why is his soul troubled? Well, his soul is troubled because it's time to die. 
Um, it's the same thing he's talking about in verse uh, um, 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people from, to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Um, and so it's this inclusiveness of the peoples of the world through the Hebrew people and Hebrew blood, Hebrew uh, lineage and, and beyond. Um, so remember in verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man uh, to be glorified. Now, folks, um, he asks a rhetorical question. He, he says um, in verse 27, he says, what shall I say? You know, his soul is troubled. He says, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? He's asking a rhetorical question. The answer is no. <laughs> he said, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? And then he answers it. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. My heart is troubled, but what am I supposed to say? I'm not going to go through with it? No, but I came to do this. Now, if you remember a movie, The Passion of the Christ, um, we've talked about it a number of times over the years, but you remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ? It was a Mel Gibson thing. It was in the theaters. It was a big deal. A lot of churches were playing it. There, was a, there, there were a lot of things that were, that were good about it, but there was something that was not so good about it. And uh, if you remember the thing that was not so good about it... Um, of course, I've joked about this with you before about Jesus inventing the kitchen table. We talked about that about a couple weeks ago. Hilarious. But um, one of the things that was not good about it was the idea that, um, you know, the, the, the emphasis was so much on Jesus' physical pain. I mean, scourging. It was so hard to watch uh, him, him being beaten and scourged and crucified. It was, it was a lot of physical pain. The flaw was the focus that that movie put on his physical pain, as if the amount of physical pain was the thing that atoned for our sin. It's not. It's not that he was bleeding. It's that he bled out. It's, it's not that he was marred. It's that he was murdered. He, his blood was spilled out. That's why, that's why you hear uh, clergy people use that kind of terminology. His blood was spilled uh, out unto death. His atoning death is what, um, is what won us uh, our salvation, not the intensity of the physical pain. In fact, one could argue probably medically that there are many painful ways to die, and there may be even more painful ways to die than crucifixion. I don't know. But uh, it wasn't just the physical pain Jesus went through that was the, 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 the most of his suffering. Physical pain was, to be sure, a part of his suffering, a big major part of his suffering. Um, he knew what was going to happen. He knew what Roman execution was. Um, that would be a very hard thing to uh, uh, have to anticipate uh, within just a couple of days, wouldn't it? Um, but it wasn't just his physical suffering. He became a curse. He was lifted up from the earth. Um, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die from. He became a curse. He became an object of judgment, um, and um, he was judged by the father he loved for the flock he loved, and uh, his, his troubled soul didn't pay for the sin debt. His physical pain didn't pay for the sin debt. The spilling of his life was paid for the sin debt. And uh, here's another thing, too, that you may have heard this before, but when he says, now is my soul troubled, when he's in the garden... And uh, he is uh, impassioned in the garden and suffering um, and trembling. Um, you know how Socrates died? 
You know, Socrates was sentenced to death, and he was, uh, you know, he was like pro-Sparta or something, and then the Athenians uh, sentenced him to death. And, and so he, he, he was 71 years old, and he was, he was uh, forced to drink hemlock. You know about this, Socrates' death? He was forced to drink hemlock. And so, you know, he's got a, Plato wasn't there, uh, he's the guy that wrote everything down, but Plato wasn't there, but he had his disciples around him, and Socrates drinks hemlock, and, and he walks around the room until his legs get heavy. Apparently, that's how hemlock works. He walks around the room until his legs got heavy, and then he lays down, they pinch his toe. Once they pinch his toe and he can't feel it anymore, they put something over his face, because that's how, how he wanted to die, and he quietly died from hemlock. And you look at that, and you go, wow, was Socrates braver than Jesus? Because Jesus was facing his impending death, and uh, Socrates uh, faced it like a man, uh, was Jesus, uh, you know, because he was so troubled, um, was he less brave than Socrates? Friend, application for your life. Now is my soul troubled, verse 27, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. You know, fr- he, he is going to be lifted up on a cross, and he is going to drink the cup of God's wrath. What is in the cup of God's wrath, the bitter cup? What's in there? Well, I'll tell you, um, think of it this way. Let me, let me read verse 27 again, and I, I, want you to, I want you to think of it this way. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from Dying for Jim? For this purpose I have come, to die for Jim. Think of it with your own name in there. If you want an application for your life, what am I supposed to say? Father, save me from dying for... It was for this purpose I have come. To die for. You know, all your guilt and mine, all your shame, all your embarrassment over sin, isn't sin embarrassing? All that indignity. Jesus came to assume that upon himself. All that guilt became heaped on him. And he became accursed for us. My sin, yours Christian, yours Christian, yours Christian, yours Christian, yours Christian, yours Christian, yours Christian. All the Christians from 2,000 years ago, all the believers from 6,000 years ago who believed in the promise of God, all the believers who are yet to be born, all that shame, all that humiliation, all that indignity heaped upon Jesus personally, owning it himself as the accursed raised on the tree. That's what Jesus came to do. Second point, continuing the idea, Jesus, the lifted up. We've got this other miraculous thing that happens in verse 27. Uh, it's tucked away. Most people don't even know what's in there. Father, glorify your name, Jesus says. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. In other words, I've glorified my name. And I will glorify my name again. 
Now, that reports something wonderful, and I won't comment a whole lot on it. I mean, it's pretty easy to understand that a voice came from heaven, but there are a few important things to note. Um, you see, of course, that uh, some of the crowd goes, oh, that's thunder, and other parts of the crowd go, ah, an angel's spoken to him, and so on. Um, but, but note, at some pivotal points in, uh, in Jesus' earthly ministry, red- deep into, into uh, redemptive history, um, let me just flip real quick to um, chapter 1. You remember when Jesus is uh, with John the Baptist, and John bore witness and said, uh, "Jesus." he baptizes Jesus, and John bears witness. He says, I saw the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So you've got this acknowledgement from heaven at the commencement of Jesus' earthly ministry that this is Jesus. He's got the endorsement of the Father by the sending of the Holy Spirit, and, and John the Baptist is satisfied that this is the one at the commencement of Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, you know, in Matthew's account, um, it, it says at, at the baptism, John saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So there's a voice in Matthew's account that is said it's God's endorsement of, of uh, Jesus as Savior. Uh, and then you think of the transfiguration. This is recorded in Matthew 17. Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them uh, Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, and Peter said to uh, Jesus, and so on. Um, Uh, He was still speaking. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And so in the latter part of Jesus' uh, ministry, um, it is affirmed again by God. And here, just uh, days before the cross, it is again. These are pivotal points of Jesus' earthly ministry, and they serve the purpose of confirming our faith, but also... Think how comforting that would have been for Jesus to be affirmed by the Father. Um, It mostly um, affirms Jesus carrying out the mission and will of the Father, which is why he says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father's answer is, um, I have glorified my name in the sending of you and uh, the work that you carried out that I I assigned you to do, and I will glorify my name again uh, when when you complete it. Now, the people, as I said, have different interpretations. Oh, it's thunder. Oh, it's an angel, and so on. But notice how Jesus is interpreting the whole thing. Remember, he's talking to Greeks. He's talking to Greek believers. And in verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, don't be confused um, or turn this into a universalistic idea. This is, not a, this is not a passage to build a universalistic theology on, but look at verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, what's he saying? Friend, is everybody that you know a Christian? Okay. Well, that can't mean that. can't mean that all people are going to become Christians because all people aren't Christians, Okay. We know that it can't mean that. So what is he saying? Remember, he's talking to Greeks. And what he's saying is, I'm lifted from the earth. I will draw all people to myself. Hey, Greek people, Greek people have shown up. 
Remember when God made a covenant with Abram and he said, hey, through you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed and here Jesus is about to be crucified and the Greeks show up and Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to draw all people to myself, all the peoples. And remember that has to do with accursedness. Uh, in Numbers 21, uh, if you remember, the people grumble against God and um, he sends fiery serpents among them and they bite the people. And the people get bitten, and they have a death sentence. They've been bitten by a, a, a deadly snake. And so what God has Moses do is he says, hey, put up a, a bronze or a brass serpent up on this pole, lift up the pole, and people who look upon it in faith will live even though they've been bitten and they've got this death sentence. Well, that's a spiritual parallel. It's a spiritual par- parallel that Jesus is making. You've got a death sentence, but there's an opportunity to live. And the way you live is you look upon in faith the provision that God has supplied. And Jesus is making that um, application to himself. He's saying to the Greeks, that's what is going to be happening to me. Whoever looks upon me in faith will live. And by the way, so there's no confusion. Uh, He said this in verse 33 to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Okay, when it says I'm going to be lifted up, It's not, uh, oh, does that mean go to heaven? No, it doesn't mean go to heaven. So there's no confusion. Jesus adds, he said this, uh, John adds, he says this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Um, Application for your life. That's what it is to move from one king to another. Um, In the case of spiritual things, it's moving from death to life a dominion of darkness to a dominion of light, a a dominion of death and judgment to a dominion of life and freedom and light. Um, It's not just a a realignment. It's it's new life in Christ. And doesn't that sound good, y'all? New life in Christ? Uh, You know, um, by being killed for what is bad... Jesus defeats what is bad. That's what he does when he is accursed on the cross for you. He, he dies for you to make you right with God. He can do that in you. Okay, last point. We've got to hurry. Jesus, the light. Verse 34, um, the crowd answers him. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And uh, Jesus says to him, the light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, uh, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Um, We'll explore this again next week. We'll fold that into our next passage, but let this be the takeaway for you. Um, The Son of Man is the light. It's the same thing the gospel writer started out with at the very beginning of John's gospel. Um, He says, "In, in the Word, with a capital W, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's how the gospel starts, and Jesus is the light. Um, In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, I'm the one history has been waiting for. Now, let's close with this. I got a couple of things. That we're, we're, we just have a few more minutes, but this is important stuff. 
this is a this is a big application for the way to live. Now, you see uh, the point of conversion, all right? So the, on the little thing there where it says conversion, you came to Christ, you came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you were made alive, you were adopted, you were justified, um, you, uh, you became a Christian. And as you mature in your Christianity, you have a growing awareness of God's holiness and a growing awareness of your sinfulness. That is God working in your heart. That is God sanctifying in you. That, that's, God, that's God teaching your soul things about you and himself. Isn't it true? As you mature as a Christian, you go, oh my goodness, I didn't realize what a sinner I am. What a sinner. I mean, it is, uh, it's profound, and that understanding becomes more and more and more and more. Well, you look at the cross in the middle of it. If the cross is squashed down, if the sufficiency of Jesus' work is squashed down. What happens as your awareness of God's holiness increases and your awareness of your sinfulness increases, but the cross is diminished in your understanding, then what happens? Well, on the top side, you start getting uh, moralistic or legalistic or prideful or judgmental of other people and full of despair. And you go, well, you know, I really got to try. Uh, I really got to try harder. And and, uh, or, yeah, excuse me, let me flip it around. I really, uh, I, I'm, I've got to be as good as I can be. I've got to be as good as I can be. Or on the bottom side, guilt, fear, shame, insecurity, despair. You, you just you become sad and, and uh, depressed. It's terrible um, when the cross is squashed down. Here's, here's something you ought to burn into your mind. Watch. Ah. When your growing awareness of God's holiness increases and your growing awareness of your sinfulness increases, and the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You see Christ's work as sufficient, 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 sufficient. Then what do you do? You believe and then you sin. Oops, I, I sin and you repent. And you believe and you repent. And you believe and you repent. But the cross of Christ in your understanding is sufficient. So you're not having to grapple around and try to work harder and do better and do, 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 do. You're not walking around dragging your knuckles on the ground in shame because the cross is sufficient. Yes, you sin, but you repent and you believe and you repent and you believe. The cross fills the gap. And so my point in showing that to you is, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. You know, sin is as far away from God as east is from west, all right? And you know that if you go north around the globe, uh, you go north, at some point you hit the top and you're going where? South. You hit the bottom, you're going north. But if you're going east, you're always going east. If you're going west, you're always going west. God separates himself from sin as far as east is from west, and guess what? That's what he does with the sinner too as far as east is from west. But in Christ, the cross is sufficient, eternally sufficient. And so as we understand God's holiness, which is revealed infinitely in heaven even, and uh, as, we, as we understand how sinful we were, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, what was in the cup, what was in the cup, it just becomes more, it just becomes shocking, doesn't it? All right, last thing, and that's, this, is, this is from a song that we've kind of retired from this church. It's called God's Love Untamed and Deep. 
Do you remember that song? God's love untamed and deep. Um, In the secret counsel of His will, ordained to save His sheep through the Lamb who would righteousness fulfill. Now listen. Christ the Lamb. His work surpassed the breach, the distance between east and west. He took the curse and drank it up. He met its sweeping reach in the blackness of the bitter cup. You'll never know how much it cost to see your sin upon that cross. I can tell you this, though. The, the bigger the cross gets, uh, the, the, the more accurately your soul will understand how safe you are in Jesus' work. Let's pray. Lord, may the cross go, grow bigger and bigger and bigger to our souls. Might we understand that it is a mystery indeed um, what Christ took for us, what Christ drank for us, what Christ um, experienced on the cross bearing our sin and shame and uh, guilt. Um, but what a, what a profound and wonderful mystery it is. Thank you for sending us a Savior. Thank you for breathing life into us that we might see the truth. And thank you for guarding us until that great day when he returns. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.